Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. I don't have anyone looking over my shoulder so I can really open up, which is a rare opportunity. My judgment was that actually in the cost of living challenges that we face, this was something that I would have deferred for a little while longer. Today's guest explains why he was reluctant to pursue an aspect of Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng's proposed financial services reforms while in office. He calls on UK regulators to rethink the way they interact with the financial services industry and lays out the case for a fundamental review of the fees the UK Markets Watchdog charges the financial services firms it polices. He also opens up on his frustrations while spearheading the UK's post-Brexit financial services reforms through Parliament, and discusses his plans for the future. John Glenn has been a Member of Parliament for Salisbury since 2010, and became the longest-serving City Minister ever when in the post from 2018 to 2022. This is his first interview about his time in office, since he resigned from his ministerial role in July, citing a complete lack of confidence in Boris Johnson's premiership. It was conducted in his Westminster office. Hi John, welcome to Following the Rules. Well, thank you for having me Lucy, it's great to have this opportunity. I asked my listeners for questions they would like to hear you answer. Right, okay. And the majority (laughs) came back with the same thing. And that is, what's your real view on the Financial Services and Markets Bill? This is obviously the package of post-Brexit reforms for the city that you led on during your uh, almost five years as city minister. Mm. What would you truly like that legislation to achieve? Well, for me, this is the fundamental reset of how the United Kingdom regulates financial services, which is obviously a massive industry employing well over a million people and contributing a massive amount to our GDP. And what it does basically is set a, a mechanism to set aside EU legislation and give the PRA and the FCA, the ability to set rules under a growth and competitiveness objective, which really sets the, the future roadmap for how regulation will work. But it does a lot of other things as well in terms of opening up financial services to the ability to change more rapidly the regulatory environment to uh, suit the needs of London in a way that we couldn't do when we were part of the EU. So I'm hugely excited by it. It was great to have that printed out on my desk on the day I resigned. We had over 30 reviews over the last year, which led to the bill. And what I think it does do is address the concerns for predictability, for high standards. We certainly don't want to be racing to the bottom and competing on the basis of deregulation. But we do want to have high standards that I think we're known for in the UK and I hope we're always known for. 
And I do want to ask you about that deregulation point, because Mm. obviously, particularly post-Brexit, there's been a huge amount of debate about that. But just before we go there on the financial services and markets bill, what did you leave out of it? What would you add to that bill to make it punchier? Well, I don't think there was anything that I couldn't and didn't put in there that I wanted to put in there. I think a lot has been discussed about whether there should be a primary or secondary competitiveness objective for the regulators. I thought secondary was appropriate because they need to be seen to be guardians of probity and high standards first and foremost. There was a lot of work that went on to think about how you organise change and do it in an ordered way. But I wasn't under any pressure to put anything more in there or take anything out. I was given a lot of freedom by the chances I worked under to develop that policy over four and a half years and I was very happy with the output. Okay. Why was there such caution around the inclusion of the so-called call-in powers? That's the ability of the government to review UK regulators' powers. And do you think Truss's government's push to suggest that that is re-included, that this next stage of the law's passage through Parliament is the right approach? Well, it was always going to be included. When I left the Treasury, Chancellor Rishi Sunak and myself had agreed that we needed that call-in power. But because there was a hiatus, if you like, there wasn't a functioning government for those few weeks, there wasn't an opportunity to do a right round on it. So nothing's changed. The call-in power was always going to be there. But Nadeem Sahawi at Mansion House didn't want to commit to it because he hadn't had the ability to consult on it. But what it does is it provides in extremists a mechanism for the democratically accountable government to challenge the regulators to look at things again. And that should remain in there. But I also am very clear that it should be used exceptionally. And the principles underpinning it should be made clear by the government through the passage of the committee stage in the coming weeks. Because it shouldn't be, and it was never intended to be, a mechanism for routine politicisation of the regulator's legitimate role, which is to set high standards. And sometimes that will be uncomfortable. But I can see circumstances where you've got financial crises or whatever, where there is a different view from politicians and there may be a mechanism then to say, well, we want you as the bank or the regulator to look at that. So I think the way it was designed was to be used exceptionally and that's got to be made clear through the passage of the bill. But there's been no change from when I left offices to where we are now. Okay, that's interesting because I'm not sure that's actually fully understood. The major concern within the city around those powers when they were first suggested was that they would limit regulatory independence, which is obviously a core tenet of the UK financial services sector and one we're very respected for. What's your comment on that and how do you see calling powers coming in in a way that would allow regulatory independence to continue? Well, I think the interpretation of it has been wrong and that it's not something that's going to routinely happen. But In a situation where you are not bound by EU directives and essentially the regulators are sovereign, if you don't have a mechanism for the democratically elected government to call in, not prescribe (laughs) a different way of looking at it, but to call in and to challenge the regulators, then who are they accountable to? There's one thing for Sam Woods and Nikhil or the governor to turn up at the Treasury Select Committee. But it's another thing to actually have specific decisions looked at and have the right for them to be looked at and to be justified. So as I said, I don't think this is going to be and shouldn't be a routinely used mechanism by politicians. But ultimately, I think you've got to say, well, having made the decision to leave the institutional framework of the EU, where does accountability lie? Does it lie with democratically elected politicians 
or once you've deferred that decision to regulators, are they then beyond any challenge in extremists? And I think that the right judgment is to put that call in power, frame it within principles that you've seen in other jurisdictions and allow that to exist. But I wouldn't expect it to be used very frequently. Okay. Generally, what are your views on Truss's government's approach to city reforms? We've had some fairly ambitious sounding plans from the new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng. He has said he wants to create Big Bang 2.0 to boost financial services. He's removing the banker's bonus cap, which limits bonus payouts to banking executives. Do you agree with the new government's approach? Well, the banker's bonus, I think we all agree, the bonus cap was never an economically efficient mechanism because what it's done is created a higher base load of cost to banks. And in 2014, George Osborne, I think, resisted it as hard as he could. But again, it was agreed. And then it just becomes a conversation about when it's wise and politically, that's a judgment for the Chancellor to make. My judgment was that actually in the cost of living challenges that we face, it wasn't going to make a material difference in the very short term. And this was something that I would have deferred for a little while longer. But I agree with the Richard Nodders and all those from the investment banks that it's not a very efficient mechanism, but that's the Chancellor's prerogative to make that judgment. And he will probably argue that it sends a signal, but I don't think in itself it has a enormous impact. It pertains to maybe several, but a few thousand <laughs> bankers. But as I say, I think is an economically sound mechanism the Bank of England and the Treasury officials would agree that it's not really ideal and we've never seen it as ideal so I don't have a problem with that at all. Some of the other things that we mentioned like Solvency 2 reform the Financial Services and Markets Bill enables that that's got to pass and I hope there can be agreement between industry and the PRA on the issue behind the matching adjustment that's quite technical there are obviously disputes around that but I'm sure that will get to the right place very quickly. On Solvency 2, just to explain, those are capital requirements for insurance firms and there are reforms in place to rethink the EU approach to that and free up capital for insurance firms to spend elsewhere. You sound generally quite positive about the new government's approach. Well, it's my bill. The new minister will be taking through the bill that I left on the table when I left. So I don't think there's much difference. I mean, the the banker's bonus cap decision is the only thing I can discern is different Mm -hmm. in terms of what we would have done. The whole fundamentals of the future regulatory framework, the transition to a situation where the regulators will deliver the standards and replace the EU regulations that I put onto statute through many statutory instrument committee sessions a few years ago, that was all agreed. And to be fair, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Lord Frost were always very complimentary about what we'd done in financial services and indeed described it as a model for the rest of Whitehall. So I'm not particularly concerned by the narrative around this bill. I was always intending it to be a positive contribution to opening up financial services for the future, doing it in a way that wasn't diverging for the sake of it, but was listening to the City of London, that was thinking very carefully about what ordered markets need, but also what sound regulation needs and how would we deliver that. And I was obviously in lots of conversations with the PRA and the FCA and they're very excellent officials, to be honest, who work very hard with Treasury officials to get to the right points and right outcomes on many of these elements. I think the point is that financial services regulation is complicated. (laughs) It's not something that mainstream politicians can actually fully 
understand because it's dealing with quite complex regulations that need a lot of serious scrutiny from experts and what I try to do is lean into those but also be clear about where we strategically wanted to go and I think this bill will will meet those expectations. So your view is there hasn't been much new suggested by the new government that isn't already in the bill? No because the bill was published and all they're doing is taking it forward. What they've done is created a narrative around it one I pretty much agree with so there's nothing particularly new because there hasn't been time for them to do anything. Now Subsequently, when the legislation's passed, how it's then implemented and what the dynamics are with regulators will be something that the new minister will have to work through. Mm. And on the banker's bonus cap decision, the indication that Chancellor Quartin has given that he'd like to remove that, you mentioned that that was a political judgment. Surely that is politically very questionable to be pushing that through now when we are in the midst of a cost of living crisis. The winter is going to be a very challenging economic period. Reputationally for bankers, for banks at the moment, for there to be headlines saying that the bonus cap is to be lifted, that's going to be potentially quite damaging. Well, I'd made the decision and advised the previous Chancellor, uh, Rishi Sunak, that it it wasn't the time to do it when I was in office, but I'm no longer in office. And I respect the right of the new Chancellor to make those judgments. And it's been pretty clear that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor are very united on an agenda to secure growth. I respect that and support them in their intentions. And I think the Prime Minister has given an interview from New York saying that some of the things that she's going to do will not be popular. And uh, this may be one of them, we shall see. But I'll certainly be popular with some of the investment banks. Okay. And you mentioned that you're opposed to a race to the bottom of standards in the UK Mm. and that the push in some sectors of the UK for deregulation as an attractive path for London to take post-Brexit is the wrong one. Do you think it is possible to have less but better regulation or would deregulation inevitably lead to some lowering of standards? It's wrong to say that everything that came out of the EU was wrong. (laughs) It's equally wrong to say that everything we signed up to was ideal. Things like PRIPs, the obligation for financial advisors to produce key information documents, which are generally redundant and not very useful. seems to me that was badly conceived directive. It's something that we should set aside and do differently. But on the regulation of green finance and standard setting, we should look to be as aligned as possible. That doesn't mean to say we should be restricted to just copy what's going on in other jurisdictions. Every jurisdiction will do things slightly differently. Obviously, London is a premier financial services centre. We need to be confident to lead in some of these areas, but get that balance right between innovating thoughtfully, but at the same time not seeking alignment to every other jurisdiction just for the sake of it. And, you know, what I found that doing that job is I met my counterparts in Germany and Italy and Spain and the US and really thought about where there is common ground and where there needs to be differences. And obviously financial services is so big in the UK, we have to take the lead in some of these areas, as we, indeed we did within the EU, and it had a massive role in shaping some of the outcomes. Some of the big directives like MIFID were not well received, but then you've now got to reconcile the fact that for many in the city they've dealt with and accommodated all of those changes. But One of the things that I think is misunderstood sometimes, Lucy, is that people say, well, what about equivalence? Well, both the EU as a jurisdiction and London are evolving. It's six years since the Brexit decision was made. And both the regulators from the Commission and in London 
need to evolve because the dynamics of the industry have changed. If you think of what's happened with fintech, with green finance, with what's happening with crypto and blockchain, the changes in consumer financing with buy now, pay later, all of these need an evolving rulebook. So we were never going to stay the same forever because indeed the EU is not where it was five, six years ago. And by equivalence, obviously, you're referring to that construct with an EU law in which the EU can recognise another non-EU country as having equivalent rules and Mm. enable them to have greater market access Mm. as a result, which was something that the UK was initially perceived to be pushing for in the months immediately following Brexit to enable the city to have greater access to the EU. But obviously that's now slipped off the agenda for the Mm. reasons you've just explained. And the deregulation point, that's relevant for a number of reasons. Liz trusting her campaign to become Prime Minister of the UK did mention that she would like to remove all EU rules from the UK statute. And Brexit has also placed a large number of new regulatory powers on the shoulders of UK regulators, some of which are already very stretched. I'm thinking of the Financial Conduct Authority particularly. They are the UK markets regulator. They have a huge to-do list to work through, not as just as a result of Brexit, but they're also dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic. They're dealing with new asset classes entirely, such as crypto. They need to ensure they're responding to that correctly. And it has been mentioned on this podcast that there should be a proper look at the regulatory initiatives grid that the FCA is following. That is a list of the regulatory priorities that the FCA has on its agenda. And the question is whether or not now is a good time to actually look at what is still relevant in that grid Mm. and really start to remove aspects of rules or rules themselves where they are just no longer necessary. So the regulatory grid was an initiative that we set up in July 2019, in the last few weeks of Philip Hammond's tenure as Chancellor. And it was designed to bring together all the ongoing work from the PSR, the FCA, the PRA, the Treasury and the bank, and looking at what was going on. I think that the challenge has always been when you see the iterations of the grid is which things do you not want to do? Because I think there's a narrative which says, let's get rid of regulation because it impedes competitiveness and growth. My instinct is that we've got to be quite careful about being dismissive of all regulation as a panacea for competitiveness. What we need to do is make sure it's right-sized and it's appropriate to induce and to enable competitiveness in London. Now, I think our regulators do a great job. And if you think of like Nikhil, who's taken on in the last year an enormous amount of transformational change, and some of it's very controversial. He's brought in a lot of new people to lead and he's changing things in mid-ranks and creating a risk-based approach to the regulation of, I think, 55,000, 60,000 entities. It is complicated, but I also was in Parliament when the London Capital and Finance Compensation Scheme was delivered and that was £120 million and regulators need to get things right as well and he's right to be focusing on better appreciation of risk and higher standards. I think, to be honest with you, the changes that came after the crisis and the abolition of the FSA and the splitting of it into the FCA and the PRA, we can always look at it, whether there needs to be changes, but I think constant change in regulators is disruptive to them, but it's disruptive to the market as well. And I think one of the challenges that probably the FCA would throw back at government is that They've had more and more things they've been asked to do. (laughs) I'm probably guilty too. But by adding more and more responsibilities, 
we create more risks that they will miss things and we create more obligations on them and then of course you have the challenge of why is the levy too high etc etc how is that allocated across different risk pools and it is complex and so I always found when I came to the House of Commons and my colleagues challenged me on things, it was always quite difficult to explain succinctly the complex balancing because obviously many colleagues would have an example of where somebody had been apparently regulated in a heavy and apparently unnecessary way. But then I could see overall we need to have strong regulations in order to have soundness in markets overall. And you mentioned Nicola Ratti, who's CEO of yeah. the FCA. What's your view on the FCA's ability to cope with the ever-expanding to-do list it has to work through? You also mentioned the FCA levy, which is its charge to the industry. Mm. It has also been mentioned on this podcast that that should be reviewed. What are your views on all that? I think there is a case to review it. I think there becomes a credibility gap when the levy payers and the pools of risk that they are paying into aren't aligned to the activities that they're undertaking. I think in principle there is an acceptance of that at the FCA and indeed they've tried to have sensible conversations about how you would reform that. But ultimately we can't have our cake and eat it. We can't have a situation where we've got compensation mechanisms when things go wrong. They've got to be paid for from somewhere. And if they're not paid for from levy payers, then they're paid for in other ways by the taxpayer. And what you see is that whenever there's a firm that goes under, often and sometimes, certainly for criminal activities, there's an expectation that somebody pays. So I think we also need to have an honest conversation with the public about where risk lies with financial services. And it seems to me that sometimes we get into a situation where we think that government and regulators should remove all risk from financial investments. That's wrong. We've got to educate people more in financial services, create better understanding of risk. But that's a bit different to criminal activity and sharp practice that we need regulators to step on. Are you suggesting that small to medium-sized businesses should pay a reduced levy? And to follow that through, could you foresee a scenario in which larger institutions would consider paying a larger levy to offset the reduction amongst the SMEs? Because obviously the FCA does still need quite a large amount of funding. What I want is an understanding of where risk lies and is the levy paying aligned to where risk is aligned to? And I think that that is arguably not where it needs to be. There will always have to be a degree of cross-subsidy, but what we can't have is a situation where the levies are prohibitive to small businesses or larger businesses, where actually they're not getting the upside in terms of the market opportunities and the burden of it is too high. So it's a complicated subject. I don't think there are easy sound bites that can crystallise this. But what I'm saying is I think it's work that needs to be done because I think in some areas of asset management where some funds are paying fees that are way out of kilter to the level of risk that they're actually responsible for. And that, I think, needs looking at. But equally, somebody's got to pay, as you say. We need sound regulators. And when I went abroad, which I did quite a lot during my tenure... I was struck by how well-respected the FCA and the PRA are, no matter how frustrated sometimes people are in the UK. When I see that people can't get a licence or they can't get through the regulatory hurdles, it was always tempting to ring up the FCA and PRA and say, come on, you need to sort this out. But actually, there's usually very good reason. And it's important that our regulators are given the space to do what they need to do, which is create strong scrutiny on anti-money laundering, 
on compliance standards so that actually we can have confidence that when they are regulated, they are sound actors who can then use almost the sanctification of the FCA and PRA licensing to build global businesses out of London. My understanding of what you suggested is that the introduction of a risk-adjusted levy would be a sensible approach. And by risk-adjusted levy, we're talking about the FCA standing charge to the industry, but adjusting that in terms of the risk of the institution paying that levy. Who should lead reform of that area? And did you ever speak to the FCA about that topic when you were city minister? Yeah, we had discussions on it. I think the point I'm making is that there are different pools that levy payers pay into. And those pools are often not aligned to the risk profile that they are actually living under. It will be for the regulator to try and lead that conversation. Obviously, from time to time, the Investment Association, Chris Cummings and others, come up with proposals on that. But I think the problem will be that any significant reduction means that there is less money available for compensation. And of course, every regulated entity says, well, we're all soundly regulated. We're never going to go bust. Of course... (laughs) That's true for the majority, but when the minority do go bust, then who picks up the tab? So we've got to have an honest conversation about what's happened in terms of when things have gone wrong, what the costs of doing good regulation. One of the things is you need sometimes, I think, more flexibility in that to bring in more private sector expertise into the regulators. Um, Somebody like uh, Emily Shepherd has worked in different roles in financial services. You need a blend. You need people like Nikhil worked at... uh, in the Treasury, always a good thing, <laughs> but worked in private sector at the, the London Stock Exchange as well. And I think to do that, you need to have more flexibility in who you employ and how you employ them and what you pay them. So I don't think I've got any easy, quick answers, but I don't think we're in the optimal place at the moment. But we've also got to be pretty honest about the level of risk that we're prepared to tolerate. If you think about the financial services compensation scheme and we think about the amount of money that we keep secure, is it 80,000, pounds of savings? Well, what does that mean if we reduce that? How do people feel about that? And so we've got to do things with clarity and open eyes about what the implications are. But I also think public and politicians' willingness to talk about risk-taking and making informed decisions of well-regulated entities is really important as well. Regulators and government can't insure against all risk, and that's a fact. What was the FCA's response to calls for that levy to be reviewed? Are they supportive of it? I think in principle they're ready to look at it, but they would say similar things to what I've said about the challenges of changing it. You've still got the same pool of risk, so you either change the level of risk that you're prepared to accept in exchange for reducing the levy but then you've got to be clear to the people that you're going to be receiving less money and less compensation when things go wrong but I think in principle it's something that always needs to be looked at How do you see the FCA's new competition agenda working for the FCA? Is there a scenario in which that would push the FCA to become less tough on the industry? No, I think it's, it's right that soundness and strong regulations is the primary but you can't have a situation where regulators don't operate without taking account of what's happening in a globally competitive industry. And so they do need to take account of the growth and competitiveness objective, but what they've got to do is make sure that it's framed within that overall framework for soundness. And there is a tendency in Parliament for people to say, oh, we want to have regard to financial inclusion, have regard to green, have regard to everything. 
I'm sympathetic to the regulators is you say, well, how do we actually calibrate the combination of all these have regards and obligations? But I think growth and competitiveness is something that we must prize because we are in a capitalist society. We can't operate in isolation and without account of what's going on in other jurisdictions. But if we were trying to achieve growth and competitiveness by deregulatory action, and that was the primary objective of the regulators, then I think what you then see over time is levels of consumer harm put into play and risk of consumer harm that would prove to be unacceptable. So again, it's complex. The delivery of that needs to be done carefully and with public scrutiny of it and parliamentary scrutiny indeed. And I think that my general comment I would say about the PRA and the FCA is that they now have an obligation to think about how to interact in new ways with industry. Because the assumption that every industry actor is malevolent, (laughs) I think is wrong. But equally, we can't be naive. They do need to do a job as a policeman of the industry. And they need to get that balance right. And I think for some of these fast-moving fintech firms that are one minute they're a bank, they're a payments innovator, they've got new products, they can get frustrated with the iterative loop that exists in their dialogue with regulators. They're not used to dealing with that level of scrutiny. But what you want is you want innovative, creative mindsets in regulators whilst also holding on to the very high standards that we need them to hold them to it's not an easy job but i think they get the changes coming and they're embracing it okay are you in touch with andrew griffith your replacement as city minister yes i've spoken to him since a few days before he was appointed i was widely anticipated through the rumor mill and i offered him my support and i will do everything i can to support him he's obviously hugely experienced he had a background in banking and he was at Sky as the COO and the CFO for a number of years and uh, I wish him well with the passage of the legislation and his work in the industry as a whole. I hope that Andrew will be able to do the job for as long as I did. (laughs) It's a hugely exciting and interesting industry and portfolio and there's a lot of complexity in it and I'm sure he will enjoy very much as I did his tenure as the city minister. What do you think should top his to-do list in your view and have you told him that yourself well it's not for me to tell him what to do i think that getting the bill through quickly i think getting solvency two through as quickly as possible after the passage of the bill is hugely important as releasing capital for investment i think it's also important that we make progress in the sphere of crypto regulation there's a lot of work to be done there to bring the industry together so that we can show leadership in that domain and i think also in terms of capital there's a full agenda there of work to be done where we can right size our rules but do it in a way that actually is building on strong foundations but doesn't create disruption people want predictability they don't want interventions that are driven by political headlines but actually give uncertainty and instability all businesses want dependable politicians who they can rely on to hold their interests high in Whitehall And I'm sure Andrew will be very capable of doing that. And he has actually indicated that crypto is a priority of his alongside open banking. There will be those listening to this podcast who are very keen to influence Griffith's agenda. (laughs) What were your top tips for doing so? And what would you say are the major mistakes being made in terms of city executives' efforts to influence your agenda? I think that the people who do the lobbying and representing the different bits of financial services are all pretty sophisticated operators. 
they assimilate industry concerns and present them in a pretty constructive way. Many of them have often been spads or worked in treasury previously. I think what we want is clear rationale and an expectation of what the outcomes are. The difficulty comes where it can be a very occasionally you have a representation from somebody that was a naked self-interest but actually what you want is something that sets it within the framework of government policy and explains why it's needed and why it needs to go further than perhaps we thought we needed to go before. On the part of a minister you need an openness to think about things afresh. The tendency can be to think well we've always done it this way so why do we need to change and so I hope that I was ready to listen and to evolve and I think you need to do that all the time in government because the industry does evolve it's a fast changing industry the way you interact with your financial institution has changed so I don't have any tips I think that (laughs) those trade bodies UK finance the ABI for insurance the corporation of London the innovate finance and the fintech space and payments space the first rate and I think the people that lead them are pretty helpful often in convening constructive and informative conversations in areas where sometimes Treasury officials need to think again or think afresh. Okay. What would you say is your vision for the City of London on the global stage? If you were still City Minister, what would you be doing post the Financial Services Markets Bill to further that vision? Well, it was a great concern that London would compete on deregulation and that we would lose our edge. What I would hope is that we would continue to have high standards, but we would continue to be at the centre of innovation. It's important that we continue to regulate where needed. People can get into grave difficulty. Sometimes it's a regulatory intervention that can stop that, but we also need to be proportionate. We don't need to stifle innovation by banning things. We need to encourage responsible use. We've got to have banks willing to lend to create this momentum in industry generally. And so I would hope that the City of London would continue to be that enabler of wider growth in the economy, which I think is critically important. I want well-run, efficient markets and profitable businesses. But I'm also conscious that we have also got responsibility to society as a whole. And so I hope with the financial inclusion agenda that businesses think about how they can make a contribution. I don't think banks need to be deliverers of social policy, but they do need to be responsible corporate actors in the society in which they operate in. There is a significant group of people who can't access financial services. And how does fintech, how does better access to data enable creditworthy assessments to happen and allow people to access more affordable credit? I think it's important that financial services firms see their responsibility as one to the whole of society, not just about making businesses grow. People need financial services, they need access to affordable credit at times in their lives and they also need access to savings products and pensions which are giving them security for their families into the future. Okay, did you leave your post as City Minister with any unfinished business? Well there was always something else to do but the Financial Services and Markets Bill was really the culmination of a lot of work over the last 18 months. This was really delivering on the future regulatory framework for the industry. But there was always more to do and there was always a new set of challenges. But I think it's probably healthy that I was the longest serving city minister in 75 years since the post was created in 1947. Nothing goes on forever. I didn't 
want to leave the job but for reasons I set out in my letter at the time connected with the previous Prime Minister I felt that it was the right thing to do I couldn't continue in a job trading on other people's career sacrifice and I made my contribution as fully as I could for as long as I did and it was a great privilege to do the job. What would you like your legacy as City Minister to be? Well, uh, look, I did my best and we shall see how things work out with this bill and what comes of it. I'm not really in the mindset of thinking about my legacy. I've been very heartened by the kind words that were said when I left, but I'm sure there are things I could have done better and there are things that I didn't address fully. But I enjoyed very much my opportunity to serve in the Treasury and, and I wish my success as well in their pursuit of an agenda which I think we'd have a lot in common on. Do you have any major regrets from your tenure as City Minister? What would you say was the hardest moment or aspect of the role? Well it was deeply frustrating to see so much delay in terms of getting to where we got to the Financial Services and Markets Bill because there was so much political volatility through 2018 and 2019 and that was just a function of an ambiguous outcome to the 2017 election and a lack of consensus over how to take things forward. During that time, I just got my head down and got on with it. And then I was retained for two and a half years after that election. And uh, I enjoyed very much the way that we could actually, in the end, bring some clarity to where things were, from where things were previously. We, we got to a position where I think industry knew what we wanted and were reasonably content with where we landed and that was very satisfying given January 2018 it was very uncertain even what sort of Brexit we were going to have. So some frustrations but no major regrets. (laughs) I think that's a good summary but it's very rare to have a job that you do for so long as continuity I think is undervalued in ministerial life and I think all prime ministers probably would like to keep people in place for longer but other pressures mean that that's sometimes not possible. But I was lucky to have my tenure there for so long. And I I think that that's healthy because it allowed me to grip things. And I saw civil servants come and go. And it meant that I was in charge rather than actually receiving wisdom from a machine. I was able to say, well, your predecessor in a particular policy area had a look at this. I want you to go back and look at it again. And that was where the, the authority that I was given by the Prime Minister was able to be felt and I think that that is something that we should try and weave into our ministerial activities a bit more. We want politicians who are appointed to government to lead and to take responsibility for the agenda that they're elected for. I think that's what people expect of us and I was very conscious of that responsibility. But I have to say the quality of the advice, the professionalism of the individuals who I worked with was really remarkable and I think the biggest regret I have is that I won't have such interaction on a day-to-day basis with such high quality Treasury officials who lots of headlines are generated about but my experience was they were very responsive to what I wanted to do and were very keen to deliver on the agenda that I set and very much were committed to service and that was the dominant sentiment I felt that existed. You've obviously acquired a huge volume of knowledge Mm. on financial services rules and regulations. How do you plan to put that to use now? What are the next steps for you? Well, leaving ministerial office has been quite an experience. I didn't do it lightly. And to some extent, there's a sense of recalibration now. My primary obligation and desire is to serve the people of Salisbury, who elected me several times. 
but I should be thinking about how I can usefully contribute to life in Parliament, be it through scrutiny, be it through... One of the things I think I'm quite interested in is to try and deepen the pool of understanding of financial services. I think it will be healthy for there to be an opportunity, if you like, for MPs and peers to have seminars on what goes on in financial services because I often feel that there is a bit of a gap sometimes. There's obviously people on the Treasury Select Committee, but it will be good to deepen awareness of how important financial services and the city is to our national life and try and debunk some of the myths. So we'll see if I can get something going in that regard. But I have deep interest in foreign policy. I was on the Defence Committee earlier in my career. I did a Master's in International Security and Strategy at King's when I was an MP. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the world of defence and foreign policy. But I think financial services will be something that I shall follow very carefully and give as much support as I can to the government in the months and years ahead. Would you consider a move out of politics and into the city? Because I'm sure there's a long line of financial (laughs) services firms that would be willing to hire you right now. Well, I'm privileged to be a Member of Parliament. I think it's one of the greatest jobs that you can do. I never say no to anything, but I'm certainly not seeking alternative employment. It would be for the people of Salisbury to decide whether they want me to continue as their Member of Parliament, but I believe that my primary focus will be here serving the people of Salisbury, but also serving the government that I'm blessed to be working under now. What would be your ideal city job if you were to consider that? (laughs) I've never really thought about it. I'm a politician. My job was to serve the city in Parliament. And I think that different people have done this job in the past. And Mark Hoban did the job, I think, 2010 to 12. He left Parliament in 2015 and has a number of roles. That's not on my agenda at the moment. It's only been a few months since I left office. Obviously, I've got things to think about. But what we need is more people in Parliament who understand financial services and can be advocates for their interests in a suitable and thoughtful way. And I hope I can, as I say, make that contribution from a different vantage point than I've had within the Treasury. So maybe it's something to ask you again in a few years' time. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's been an incredibly informative conversation. We've covered a lot of ground and it's been especially interesting to hear your views without your ministerial hat on. (laughs) So thank you very much for your time today. Well, I don't have anyone looking over my shoulder so I can really open up, which is a rare opportunity. Thank you very much. It's been great to go over what has been a very exciting and interesting period of my life and as Economic Secretary and City Minister in the Majesty's Treasury. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.